0: This week on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making podcast, we will be going back to 2016 when Pastor Anson gave a special talk titled LGBT and the Gospel with special clips from Rosario Butterfield and Jackie Hillberry.
1: There are a number of things, but 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 the first is is that people are, are people and um, folks who identify as lesbian or gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer, are—you um, know—they're—they're tr- they're trying to make make the most sense of their life as they can. They—they they feed their dogs. They love their children. They—they keep—they keep good care of their gardens. I mean, people are people, um, and so the the most important thing that Christians can do is not is not buy into this um, this real travesty of personhood that has come to us through the category of sexual orientation and that is to believe that somehow people who identify as gay or lesbian are a separate species of people. There's one category of personhood. A person is has a soul that will last forever, is an image bearer of a holy God. So even when we meet people who Um, are are reflecting that image badly and and I think it's fair to say that we all would be considered that person, we still must see that person as an image bearer of a holy God. Another thing Christians get really tripped up with I think is they focus so much on the particular sin that that person manifests or that you think that person manifests and they, they become then bad listeners. You know, when, when I first started reading the Bible and was meeting with Ken Smith, who's the pastor the Lord used in my conversion, he, um, he was really clear that he, I don't, he knew that my being a lesbian was not my biggest sin. Being an unbeliever was. So don't get sidetracked into focusing on sins, plural, about anybody, whether it's your neighbors who identify as LGBT or, or, or other neighbors. Um, Get to know people well enough to know what's really the issue. You know, everyone has a longing for those things that eternal souls need. And the Word of God is the only food and the person of Jesus Christ is the only friend for all of humanity. So don't get sidetracked with how people are presenting themselves or how they're identifying. That's not helpful and it's not even kind. Another thing you might want to think about, too, is that before you focus on the specifics and on the consequences of original sin, a really helpful thing to do is to really just share worldview. When people get together and they talk, it it doesn't hurt to say, well, you know, this is why Christians think the way they think. We believe that all people are distorted by original sin. Uh, me and you and everybody else, and we're all distorted differently. But before you get into the particulars of, of actual sins, it really does help to at least have some kind of opportunity to talk about some other things. And there's only one way to do that, and that's to actually have time with people, to not be afraid to linger with your neighbors and to not be afraid to have a particular household that encourages people to come and share their lives.
0: That's uh, Rosaria Butterfield, really sharp lady. You should Google her later. I want to say welcome. Uh, Glad you could all be with us uh, tonight. And so I want to start off by saying this. I don't know who's here. I don't know who's here. I I know uh, many of you are part of the Emmaus Church family, and and we love you. Uh, Some of you are not. Some of you are visiting from other churches. Some of you are... um, would identify yourself as gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual. And I want to start off by saying this. uh, I'm really, really thankful that you're here, and it's really courageous for you to be here. And I want to say that from the get-go. I fully understand that this is a sensitive topic, right? Can't tell you how many times getting ready, as we were getting ready for tonight, people said, hey, man, you know this is a sensitive topic, right? No, really? really? Seriously? I was not aware. I don't get the news. Um, I know. I know. Um, But here's what's important. I'll tell you one of the things. I I I meant to... At first, I wasn't even going to say this, and then I was going to say it later in the talk, and now I'm starting with it. This is always dangerous. Um, One of the things... (sighs) That burdens me, and that saddens me, and oftentimes uh, angers me, is how political this discussion has become. I don't think that's I don't think that's helpful because the thing about when it, when any sort of conversation becomes political, whether it be something like the abortion issue, whether it be something like an L- you know, the LGBT issue, whatever it is, what tends to happen is we begin to, uh, we begin to see people who are different from us as the enemy. It's us versus them. It's the realm of politics, right? It's right versus left. It's conservative versus liberal. It's we're the ones with the white hat and those people over there are the ones with the black hat. But you understand uh, the scriptures don't paint that sort of picture at all. The picture says uh, none of us got a white hat. We all got black hats. And the only one with a white hat is Jesus. He's the only good guy. And so I don't think it's helpful for this to be a conversation that's um, played out in, in the political realm. I know part of that is, is just, you know, the way that it is and the way that it's always going to be. But I feel like one of the things that needs to happen, that has to happen in the church, is that we um, sort of, uh, the way I heard somebody put it recently, is we sort of turn the volume down on the conversation, and we actually have a conversation. And so that's what I'm hoping to do tonight. I know it's a sensitive topic. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Understanding that there's some people in here who, I'm gonna to talk to, and by the way, just so you're aware, the vast majority of, of my talk tonight, I'm not even gonna call it a sermon, my talk, the vast majority of it is gonna be targeted at professing followers of Jesus, Okay, so those of you who would identify yourself as, you know, LGBTQ, you need to understand like, you need to understand that from the get-go, like, like the talk is specifically geared towards professing followers of Jesus. That's going to help all of us as we sort of track with this and listen to this. That being said, here's the reality. Some of you, maybe even many of you, maybe even honestly, uh, some of you who are professing followers of Jesus and some of you who aren't on, in both camps are going to disagree with some stuff that I have to say. And I would say that's, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick around after this. I'm gonna be out in the lobby. I would love to have a conversation. Uh, I've got an email address. We've, the church has a phone number. Like, we, I would love to be able to have a follow-up conversation, but I am gonna ask you to do this. I am gonna ask you to at least hear me out, okay? I'm gonna ask you to hear me out. And I hope it's gonna be beneficial. So first off, I need to pray. I need to pray, and I wanna pray, and so let's... let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for uh, the amazing privilege it is to um, be a pastor at this church and to teach the Bible at Emmaus Church. I'm just grateful for who you are. I'm grateful for your grace. I'm grateful for the good news of the gospel. I'm grateful for every single one of the people who are here tonight Lord, regardless of where any of us fall on the spectrum, the the reality is is true in Psalm 139 that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. We, We have been knit together in our mother's wombs by you. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would speak through me, that you would help me. Holy Spirit, would you hide me behind the cross? And I pray that each one of our hearts would be fertile soil tonight as you would speak to us, as you would speak through me. Lord, I'm your your servant. I just want to be a servant. And so I pray that you place a guard over my own lips and don't allow me to get in the way of what you want to do as so often happens, Lord. Help me. Lord, help us. I pray it all through the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so here's why we're doing this, okay? I'll tell, you why, I'll tell you why we're doing this first off. We're doing this because uh, this is a really important conversation and discussion and topic for the church to be uh, focusing on and talking about and having real frank discussions about for a few specific reasons, okay? We'll list off three reasons why this is an important thing for us to be talking about family. Number one, it's important because most of us if not all of us in this room have someone in our lives, a family member, a friend, a coworker we care about, most of us have someone in our lives who is gay. Most of us do, right? Maybe it's a personal friend, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's, you know, some of you, somebody you've known throughout school or high school, somebody you've been close with for years, whatever, but... Most of us know something like that. Matter of fact, here's the reality, okay? And we're going to talk more about this later, but but here is the reality. Um, if If I, you know, let's just be real tonight, if I were to ask the question, and we won't, but if I were to ask the question, who in this room right now, uh, you've never really talked about it with anybody, but the reality is um, you wrestle with same-sex attraction. If I were to ask the question, uh, some of you, if you were being real in a moment of honesty and transparency, would raise your hand. You, or you would, in a moment of honest transparency, say, yeah, that's me. Now, maybe you don't feel like this church is a safe place to do that, which is a completely different sermon, right? Um, but that's that's just the reality. So the point is this, Emmaus. Um, and family. That the point is, this discussion is critically important for us to be happening. I'll bring it in house. Critically important for us to be happen having as a, as a church because we all have a personal interest in this topic. Meaning, this topic affects our lives. This topic affects our lives. So that's one reason it's important. Another reason it's important to have this discussion is because, uh, I, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but over the past few years, this topic has kind of become the centerpiece of political and social conversation and debate. Right? I mean, if you don't believe me, look, we've got a picture for you, right? An example of this. Do we got that? There you go, right? It's kind of become a big deal. Kind of the centerpiece of political and social conversation in our country, a third reason why this is a really important conversation for us all to be having, I believe, is, is because, um, and again, uh, this is where I bring it into the church realm, um, the third reason it's important for the church to be having this conversation is because the culture, I mean, this is clearly happening, the culture is clearly evangelizing the church on this topic. Whether or not you agree with with you know homosexuality as a sin or is not a sin, wherever you fall on that spectrum, what you can't disagree with is the fact that the culture is evangelizing the church on this topic. And the reason I say that is because you've got to think about it this way. We're talking about historically, right? Historically, throughout the history of the church, an issue that has been seen as being sinful, and yet it seems like we've come to a place, even over the past 100 years, and we'll talk about that timeline in a moment, where things have seemed to be shifting, and, and the, the church, many people in the church seem to be kind of taking their cues from the culture on this topic. One, one example of this, is, and there's a lot of examples of this, but one, one example would be uh, uh, one high-profile pastor who's written tons of books, um, recently completely shifted on this issue. Completely. And he wrote this. We'll put it up on the screen for you so you can see this. Um, this particular pastor, and many of you know him and have read his books and you know, watched his videos. He said this, said, quote, I am for marriage. I am for fidelity. I am for love. Whether it's a man and woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man. I think this ship has sailed and I think this is the world we are living in and we need to affirm people wherever they are, right? So, so what I'm saying to you is th- this: this cultural shift has seemed to be happening. And so what happens is is this: like when there's an issue that historically has been has been seen as as sinful for years and years and years and years, what needs to happen is that is that we, meaning the church, those in the church, what's healthy is that we take a step back and we ask the question: Okay, hold up for a second. Um, I'm, I'm seeing these these shifts happening. So what I need to ask is. What does the Bible actually say on this issue? Because there are some over here who say that, We've just been reading the Bible wrongly for a whole lot of years, and there's others over here that say, no, we're reading the Bible rightly, and and this issue is sinful. So what does the Bible actually have to say on this issue? Because as worshipers of Jesus, saved by grace, saved by the blood of Christ, one thing the Bible is absolutely clear on is that if anything should be happening, the church should be evangelizing the culture rather than culture evangelizing the church. So it is healthy, wherever you fall on this, it is healthy for people within the church when they see cultural shifts like this happening to go, hold on, time out, what does the text actually say, right? So all that to say, that's why we're doing this event tonight. That's why we're doing this. And believe me, family, here's the reality. Again, I fully realize that talking about this issue and talking about what the Bible has to say about this issue is totally controversial. I get it. I understand, man, I completely... And quite frankly, that's why most churches don't touch it. Frankly, that's why most churches don't touch it. And I'm just going to say this. I mean, if, you, if you're here, you know, today or tonight, and you you identify yourself as gay, lesbian, you know, trans, or, or bi, here's what I would say to you. Um, you. You can totally disagree with our position, and you don't know if you do yet or not, so stay tuned, but you can totally disagree with our position if... If you choose to, but here's the reality, at least we're dealing with it. Because I'll I'll be honest with you, I think one of the most harmful things that any church can do, no matter where they fall on this issue, is to not touch this issue. But here's the thing, here's what I'm hoping for. There are two purposes for tonight. The first purpose is this, to equip God's people to know how to biblically think about this issue. And the second purpose is this. The second purpose is to humbly inform people in the LGBTQ community what we as followers of Jesus actually believe about this issue because I think there's a lot of confusion. I really do. So let me start off with some history. It's good for us to know some history, okay? And uh, that's where we're going to start tonight. So the first thing we need to understand tonight is how quickly this particular issue in the, in the American landscape has evolved over even the past 100 years. I mean, it really has evolved. It's, it's pretty staggering. It's, it's, it's staggering how quickly this issue has evolved. I'll give you a couple bullet points, provide some context for you so that we know how to think through this. We don't have these for the screens, but just follow along with me. Um, first of all, uh, the Society for Human Rights in Chicago became the country's earliest gay rights organization only back in 1924. So think about that for a second. For a lot of us, we go, well, that's 90 some odd years. It seems like a long time. But think about that. Less than, it was only in 1924 when the very first gay rights organization was established in the United States of America. Okay? Fast forward to 1962. 1962, Illinois became the first state in the United States to actually decriminalize homosexual acts between consenting adults in private, right? So they were the first state, Illinois was the first state in 1962 to say, hey, it's no longer criminal um, to participate in homosexual activity. Now, keep in mind, that was only one state, right, in 1962. Fast forward to the year 2000, the year 2000, Vermont becomes the very first state to to, to administer, to provide legal unions for homosexual couples. And at, at that point, you still couldn't call it a marriage, it was a legal union, right? And then On June 26, 2015, June 26 of last year, the Supreme Court votes to legalize gay marriage in our nation, right? So the point is this. This issue really has evolved at lightning speed. It really has. And I understand that there are many in the LGBT community who would say, no, it hasn't evolved fast enough, but you got to understand, like it really has because arguably the civil rights movement hadn't even done that much in that short amount of time. This is something that's been happening quickly in our culture, and the question is this, family, again, bringing it in the house and, and, and bringing it home to those of you and those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus in the house tonight. Um, the question is this for us. As American culture continues to change at a really rapid pace, where does that leave the church? Because that's really the question that we're asking. Where does that leave the church? As everything around us and is, is, is changing so fast, where does that leave the church? Specifically, the question is, what should we believe about the culture around us and how should we rightly engage that ever-changing culture? Because that's a really important question to ask. If you're part of The church. And if you actually believe that Jesus has called us to share with everybody how amazing he is, how loving he is, and how wonderful the gospel is, a great question for us to ask is how, what should we believe? What should we believe about the culture around us, this ever changing culture? And how can we rightly and faithfully engage it? Because I don't care who you are. I I don't care how devout of a Christian you are. You can read the Bible, man. The Lord has not called Christians to live in bubbles. So the right question is, what should we believe about the ever-changing culture and how should we rightly engage and interact with it? Well, let's start off with this. We'll separate those two, right, for the time being. We'll try to keep these thoughts as logical as we can. We'll start over here. What should we believe about this issue? We'll start there. What should we, meaning Bible-believing Christians, again, to, to identify who we're talking about, who the we is in that, in that sentence, what should we, Bible-believing Christians, professing followers of Jesus, uh, believe about this particular issue? The short answer is this. The short answer is we should believe the Bible. The longer answer, the more complex answer, is... Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to deal with the text tonight. We're, we're going to be all over. We're going to be in a few different places. We're going to deal with the text. We are going to deal with the text. You're not going to come to Emmaus Church and not deal with the text. If that ever happens, I should be fired immediately. We're, we're going to deal with the text. That's the most important thing. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, I want to read this together. We're going to come back and parse it a little bit, talk about it, we're going to use this as a springboard. We're going someplace. And again, if you're sitting here right now and going, man, I already don't like this guy. (laughs) There's a lot of people who don't. Um, But I would say, hear me out. I'm begging you to hear me out. I'm begging you to hear me out. We're going somewhere, okay? Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says this to the church in Rome. For the wrath of God, and by the way, some of you have grown up in church and you've seen this text in a very, in a very particular way, um, and, and I'll be honest with you, uh, one, of, one, one of the unfortunate things is oftentimes this text has been used to beat people up. And I'm going to tell you something, that's the wrong way to see this text, because if this text should be doing anything, it should be convicting every single person in this room. So that being said, let's read it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. There we go. Includes us all, right? And unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, watch it, suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now follow Paul, what Paul's saying here. What Paul's saying is this. It's a very, it's a very bold argument because what Paul just said is, look, from the history of the world, from, from, from the, from the beginning of the beginning of mankind, right? There has never in the history of mankind ever been anyone who's ever been justified in believing that God is not real. Never. No one has ever been justified in, now, there have been a lot of people, and there are a lot of people today who say God is not real, God is made up, it's just a fantasy, but what Paul's saying is this, there's never been anyone who's ever been justified in believing that, namely because all you really have to do to see that there is a creator much larger than us is walk outside and look up. I mean, do we really think that those, whether you just see them as, you know, gaseous orbs or whatever, those things called stars, like, you know, billions of, of light years away, do we actually think that those things just happened by accident when we ourselves can't even pull off tasks one millionth as awesome as that, Right? I look at a star, and I go, that just happens to be there. It happened by accident, but I can't, I can't match my socks. Really? So what Paul's saying is that you, you got to pay attention, like that no one's ever been justified in believing that God is not real. And then watch, watch what Paul says. Paul says this. So here's what happened for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things so what Paul says is look, um, things spiral downward because of what happened in Genesis 3 so what, what begins to happen is people begin to live lives on their own declaring things like there is no God and eventually that always spirals to a next level and the next level that spirals to is people begin to worship created things rather than the creator. Now, that's where it becomes convicting, right? People begin to love stuff more than they love God, right? I mean, you fill in the blank. Love stuff more than you love God, right? Fried chicken, burritos, taquitos, money, travel ball, whatever it is, you love things more than you love God. That's what Paul's saying. So said, then watch what he says Paul says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who, that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, okay, so, so what Paul is saying is, is this, beloved, um, we are all broken because of sin, We are all broken because of sin. And Paul begins to take it deeper in this text. He he starts off with, look, you got to understand, we're all broken because of sin. And then he gets very specific at some point. And what Paul says, and we can disagree, you can disagree with this if you want, but what Paul says right here in Romans chapter one is that one of the results of that brokenness is the act of homosexuality. That's Paul. Now, follow me. This is, you got to understand. This is the Bible's foundational message on the issue of homosexuality, okay? This is the Bible's foundational message on the issue of homosexuality. According to the Bible, homosexuality, the act of homosexuality, according to the Bible, right, is not God's original design, but instead, just like every other sin, hear that, just like every other sin, it is part of what we would call decreation decreation meaning it's the result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So here's the point, at the risk of sounding harsh, and what I'm about to say to you, I don't say to sound harsh, I say to state a true fact that even even people who are involved in a homosexual lifestyle agree with and I'll prove that in a second. So what I'm saying right now isn't meant to be harsh, it's just meant to state a fact. When you read the Bible, when you take the Bible, when you read the Bible, when you do a study of the Bible, what you begin to discover is that the Bible has nothing good to say about the practice of homosexuality. Now again, that is not a Christian soundbite, that's just a fact, and I'll prove it to you. So, so for example, um, even the Dutch scholar, Pim Pronk, who, um, I mean, you can get his book on Amazon, he's written a whole book. He, he himself is a Bible scholar who is a, who is a practicing homosexual, um, even he admits in his own book on the Bible and homosexuality, he admits this. We'll put the quote up on the screen. Pimpronk says this. Scholar, Bible scholar, uh, he himself is proud to be homosexual. He says, wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. All right? So, so that's just a fact. That's not a soundbite. That's not one of those, you know, grenades pastors throw out to try to get an amen. I'm not trying to get an amen. I don't even want an amen for that. Like, it's just truth. Right? So what I'm trying to say to you is this, like in much the same way that the Bible never has anything good to say about adultery or gluttony or drunkenness or greed or any, any kind of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, in the same way that the Bible never has anything good to say about those, the Bible never has anything good to say about the, the act, the practice of homosexuality. So the question we then have to ask is, well, why, well, why is that? If we're dealing with text, if we're dealing with this, then why is that? Well, it's because, again, according to the Bible, all of those things that I just mentioned are the direct result of our brokenness. That's why. The reason the Bible, the reason the Scriptures never have anything good to say about any of those things, anything positive to say about any of those things is because, according to the Scriptures, every single one of those things I just named off are the direct result of of our brokenness, meaning none of those things is God's original intent. It's not part of creation, it's part of decreation. It's the result, according to the scriptures, of the fall, meaning none of those things that I just listed, according to the Bible, can ever bring about human flourishing, okay? This is, this is, this is the point that's, that's parsed out, that lay, that's laid out in the scriptures. So, so here's, here's the point, okay, here's the bottom line. This is what we're starting with tonight. The Christian worldview, I want to be clear about this so there's no confusion, okay? The Christian worldview, the historical Christian worldview is a worldview that sees homosexual practice as being a sin, okay? And this is the tension for a follower of Jesus in 2016 America. This is the tension. And this is where the political, trying to think of a word to use without getting disqualified from my position as pastor, hogwash, it makes me so angry, man, because it's not helpful. Because what happens is politics always deals with caricatures. Politics is always about, you know, dealing in very shallow you know, shallow titles and, and and accusations for for people. So 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 politically, this debate turns into a um, an us versus them sort of mentality. And and honestly, I mean, as the church, let's just kind of own this man as the. As the church, as the church historically, many, many of us in the church historically have been absolutely guilty of seeing people who identify themselves as gay or lesbian or trans or bi, whatever it is. We have been guilty of seeing that group of people as, quote, those other people. So we need to own that to a certain degree. But what's not helpful is this. What politics does is it, it eliminates complexities, right? Politics eliminates complexities. So according to the political argument, what happens is this. Um, I look at those in the LGBT community, I'm tempted to go, well, those people, just, they just don't care about God. And then people in the LGBT community look at, look at me or people like me or maybe even people like you and think to themselves, well, they just hate people. Different from them. And so it always deals with like these labels, these shallow labels, but there's a tension. We can't eliminate the tension. And here's the tension for, for being a Christian in 2016 America. The tension is this. If I'm a Christian who actually believes that the Bible is indeed the Word of God and I believe... Because again, one of, the arguments, one of the arguments here recently has been, well, the problem is that we're reading—we've been reading the Bible wrongly for all these years. That's one of the arguments that's been made. But if I'm a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian who believes that we've been reading the Bible rightly, then I then here's the tension: I have to believe that homosexual practice is a sin because the Bible clearly says that it is. So there's a tension there. There's a tension. I'm just saying. Pastor and author Tim Keller, who's way smarter than I am, so I'll quote him, um, was recently speaking about this exact same issue to a group of non-Christian journalists at an ethics and public policy forum. He was speaking about this tension. He was speaking about this tension that does exist for any Christian who believes that the Bible, the text is the text, and we're not reading it wrongly, we're reading it rightly, and this is what God has said. And he speaks into this tension, and here's what Tim Keller says, throw it up on the screen for you so you see this. Keller says this, he says, um. If you say to everybody, anyone who thinks homosexuality is a sin is a bigot, you're going to have to ask them to completely disassemble the way in which they read the Bible, completely disassemble their whole approach to authority. You're basically going to have to ask them to completely kick their faith out the door, right? And the point that Keller is making here is this, family, um, there's a real tension here for the Bible-believing Christian that's unavoidable. It's just part of having a Christian worldview for the Bible-believing Christian who believes that we're reading the text rightly. This is just part of having a Christian worldview. And so here's the deal. I wanna be real clear on that before we move on to the next issue, okay? Because we're about to move on to the next issue, but this is where we have to be crystal clear. It can't be foggy, you know? If it's, there's, a, there's a whole... There's that whole saying, right? If it's a fog in the pulpit, it'll be a mist in the pew or a mist and a fog, whatever. I may have gotten it wrong. But the point is, you've got to be really clear. Sometimes you have to be over clear so that people are absolutely clear. And I want to be very clear on this issue before we move on, beloved. Here at Emmaus Church, here at Emmaus Church, and I say this with, before I, before I say what I'm about to say, I say this humbly as a sinner. Okay? Here at Emmaus Church, we believe that the practice of homosexuality is a sin that needs to be repented of. That's what we believe. Now, having said all that, there's something else we all need to consider if we're going to be loving, gospel-centered Christians when it comes to this issue and not a bunch of jerks. Because just so you know, being a jerk is a sin too. There's something we need to consider when it comes to this issue. If we're not gonna be jerks, instead we're gonna be loving gospel-centered Christians. And so here's what I wanna do, family. I wanna spend a few minutes talking about a thing called empathy. How many of y'all heard of empathy? Yeah, it's a good word to know and be familiar with. I feel like empathy has been something that has been tragically missing from this conversation when it happens in the church. So I want to talk about empathy because I feel like empathy is unbelievably important. Just, you know, for those of you who aren't sure what, you know, empathy means, right, or empathy is, and, you know, didn't really pass the SAT or whatever, let just, you know, well, the dictionary defines empathy this way. Here's what empathy is. We'll put it on the screen. Empathy, very important. Empathy is the capacity to understand or feel what another person is experiencing from within the other being's frame of reference, Right? In other words, family. Here's the deal. Empathy. You know what it is. Empathy is about me calling a timeout and 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 getting off my you know getting off my soapbox and forgetting about all my little bullet points and my little arguments and and all the you know statements I use to try to win a debate. Empathy is about me not talking for a few minutes and being really slow to speak, and and really quick to listen, and it's about me actually taking the time to actually consider where another person might be coming from. And it's healthy, family. Empathy really is a healthy thing. And again, family, I'll be honest with you, in my opinion, there's a huge lack of empathy when it comes, particularly this LGBT issue, amongst Christians, amongst believers. And I'll tell you, my heart for us as a church is that we, we be able to empathize with, with people who are hurting and with people who are sinning and with people who are not only, not, not only doing things we disagree with, but doing things that we believe are sinful and should be repented of. But we want to actually take the time to have a relationship with someone so that we can understand kind of where that person's coming from. I mean, that's a good thing, family. It's called being a missionary. You know what I love about Jesus? Here's what I love about Jesus. Again, whether or not, wherever you fall on this issue, let's take the example of Jesus for a second. We're preaching through the gospel of John on Sunday mornings. There's a whole lot of examples like this we could use, but we'll take the one from John chapter four, where uh, Jesus uh, sits next to the woman at the well. Remember that? He sits next to this woman at the well in the heat of the day, and she had to go fetch water at the heat of the day because, you know, she was basically a loose woman who'd been with a lot of men and you know, sexually promiscuous and therefore was, you know, committing this sin that needed to be repented of and, and, and Jesus sits down with her and I love, it. Jesus who knows everything, Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus, absolutely perfect, the God man, the first thing out of his mouth is not, man, you're dirty. Don't you know what you're doing? You're, you're, you're such a sinner. I love, I love that the first thing out of his mouth wasn't that but instead Jesus has a conversation about, hey, guess what? I've got living water. I'd love to give you some of that. No, eventually he dealt with the issue. He brought it yeah. up. But it's not the first thing. There, there, there comes a point where we have to ask, man, what does it mean to be empathetic? So here's what I want to do for a few minutes. We need to consider, I want us to consider, again, bringing it in-house, people of Emmaus Church and people in here who are uh, followers of Jesus, professing followers of Jesus and claim to fault here on this issue. Um, I want to consider the point of view from someone from the LGBT community to see things through that lens because oftentimes what happens is what happens is this oftentimes those of us who are Christians we're, we're we're thinking to ourselves man I've got good truth here this is good truth this is really good truth why won't people listen to my really good truth right and and what happens is some of us can get really frustrated because we feel like man we got really good truth here and it is good truth y'all it is absolutely amazing incredible truth but here's what we forget I feel like what we forget is that this truth as good as it is as amazing as it is is often seen in a completely different way by those in the LGBT community for very specific reasons and oftentimes all we see is man people they won't listen to my good truth but the problem is they're seeing this good truth. it's complicated all I'm saying is complicated and here's what I mean by it's complicated Explain to you what I'm talking about. I'll start with an excerpt from an article. First of all, let will throw that picture up. Um, I don't know if you know um, who this is. Some of you do. I'm gonna read this to you about him. Matthew Shepard. The horrific events that took place shortly after midnight on October 7th, 1998 would become one of the most notorious anti-gay hate crimes in American history and spawned an activist movement that more than a decade later would result in passage of the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, a federal law against biased crimes directed at lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender people. Two men, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, abducted Matt and drove him to a remote area east of Laramie, Wyoming. He was tied to a split-rail fence where the two men severely assaulted him with the butt of a pistol. He was beaten and left to die in the cold of the night. Almost 18 hours later, he was found by a bicyclist who initially mistook him for a scarecrow. Matt died on October 12th at 12.53 a.m. at Port Valley Hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado with his family by his side. His memorial service was attended by friends and family from around the world and garnered immense media attention that brought Matt's story to the forefront of the fight against bigotry and hate. All right, so so, so here's here's the point, Emmaus, here's what we all desperately need to understand since we're talking about the curse of sin, since we're talking about Genesis 3, since we're talking about the creation since we're talking about the ripple effects of the fall in the Garden of Eden, one of the things we all desperately need to understand is this. Because the curse of sin is real and because the world we live in is absolutely broken as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, there really is such a thing as hate directed towards the homosexual community. Can we agree on that? There absolutely is. Like there really is this such thing as bigotry directed towards the homosexual community. Those are the LGBT community that this this bigotry, like there really is, there, there really are horrific, unspeakable, deplorable things done to others at times simply based on things like their sexual orientation. Violence. Abuse, murder, and I'm going to tell you something, followers of Jesus. Like, if we profess to be pro life, stuff like that should anger us just as much as the abortion thing. Amen. Men and women created the image and likeness of God, abused, hurt, killed because of their sexual orientation. Were you paying attention on the day that uh, Supreme Court, uh, that SCOTUS passed the, uh, the Gay Marriage Act back last uh, June, June of last year, were you paying attention to what happened that very day? I don't know if you saw this on the news. Some of you did. Were you paying attention where on that very day, ISIS over in Syria, do you see what they did? The very day that uh, Supreme Court passed the Gay Marriage Act, ISIS in Syria as a response to that, took a bunch of homosexual men onto the top of a building, blindfolded them, tied their hands and their feet behind them, and threw them headfirst off these buildings. Murdered them. Wait, wait, here's the deal. The ISIS, like, they're not Christians. Right? They're not Christians. They're not followers of Jesus, but they're opposed to homosexuality for completely different reasons. Follow me, follow me here. As we all know, June 12th, this past year, -year 29-year-old Omar Mateen walks into a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and kills 49 people, severely injuring another 53 people. Omar Mateen wasn't a Christian. Mateen wasn't a follower of Jesus, but guess what? Um, He was opposed to homosexuality for completely different reasons. You recognize these folks? Do we have that picture of those people? you recognize them? Westboro Baptist Church, right? Which, by the way, you know, the fact that they can call themselves a church just goes to show pretty much anybody can call themselves a church and get away with it, right? I call myself potato chip, doesn't mean I am one, right? I mean... You seen these people? Anybody? You seen these people? They actually, you know what they did? They actually, in response to the Orlando massacre, they actually protested the funerals of the victims. I would have showed you their signs that they held up at those funerals, but they're honestly too uh, obscene to actually even show. But many of the signs, one example, many of the signs that they held up actually said, God sent the shooter. And they had splats of what looked like red blood all over them. they're not Christians. They're not Christians. They're not followers of Jesus. You will know them by their fruits, Jesus said, right? Like, I'm not trying to judge, but at some point, they're not Christians, but they oppose homosexuality for completely different reasons. Now, The point is this, family, please hang with me because we're making a larger point here. The point is hate directed towards people who are practicing LGBT lifestyles is a real thing in this world. It's a real thing bigotry directed towards those who are practicing LGBT lifestyles, like it's a real thing. So consequently, follow me, consequently what happens is this. Those of us who are prof- professing followers of Jesus, Bible-believing Christians, believe that we're reading this rightly and that it's good truth, we come along to our friends in the LGBT community with our good truth, and we wonder why they won't listen to our good truth, but oftentimes what's happening is that this really good truth just gets lost in all the other noise. It gets lost in all the, uh, all the, all the bigotry, so as Christians, what happens is we get, so, so we're wondering what in the world, what in the world? Why is my friend so defensive about this issue? But understand, as Christians, what happens is this. There is real bigotry. There is real hate directed towards the LGBT community. So what happens is we get lumped together with people like ISIS and terrorists and fundamental heretics. And as a result, many in the LGBT community believe that Christians who believe the Bible just like all those other people are against them. Now listen, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's the way it is. I'm not saying that's right. This is about empathy, right? Amen? Amen? Some of y'all looking at me angry. I'm like, come on. Um, it's about empathy. Additionally, on top of all that, on top of all the bigotry stuff, here's what else happens. I just want to paint a picture for how complicated this is. Here's what else happens, okay? When I think of the most um, special moments of my life that I've ever experienced, if I had to narrow it down to like top three, top three amazing transformative moments of your life, uh, my, my top three would be this. Uh, number one, first one, um, figuring out that God had saved me. I was saved, right? Jesus, grace, the gospel. What? I'm a sinner. Jesus saved me. cross is amazing, right? Heaven forever, eternal life, relationship with God. What? Right? Amazing. Second one, I get married to my awesome wife right down here, Heather. August 26th, 2000, getting married to my wife, right? Standing down there in front of West Highland Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia, all of our friends, all of our family standing around, right? Seeing that hot mama walk that aisle. It was amazing. It was just, it was awesome. It was awesome. What? What? And then the third one would be having my two daughters, Annabelle, Madeline. Right? I remember. I still remember we were living in Modesto, California, at the time, and uh, Annabelle was born. This was our first child. Annabelle was born, and I just didn't even know. I just, I just didn't even know what was happening. It was crazy. It was amazing, and I was so worried. I was so worried because literally, I'm not even kidding. Like the doctor who delivered Annabelle, I guess he had done a million of these because as as the process is going on between pushes, he's turning around watching Fox News. i like, bro, I got a baby here, what? And he delivered the baby and he had the baby and he said, do you want to cut the umbilical coordinate first? I'm like, yeah, awesome. And then I got over there with the scissors and I'm like, this is the grossest thing I've ever done in my life, right? <laughs> but then I was like, man, this is, oh, I can't believe this, this is awesome. I got, I got a baby, What? I think of the most special transformative moments of my life. Well, think about that, family. Think about that. People in the LGBTQ community, they're, they're not stupid. They're not stupid. Like, like, here's what happens. They hear what we're saying, and by we, I mean those of us who are in this church. They hear what we're saying, and, and what we're saying sounds absolutely preposterous, man. Because, because they, they hear it, and they hear the conversation, and 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 someone say, well, hold up for a second. Think about what you're saying to me. Like you're telling me, you're telling me how I'm living is wrong. You're telling me what I'm doing is wrong. If, if I listen to you, I might have to be okay with never getting married, ever. Miss out on that special, like I'm gonna have to totally miss out on that. I'm gonna have to totally miss out on even having kids, really. I mean, are you hearing what you're saying to me? Are you hearing... Now, again, family, listen. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's the way that it is. It's complex. There are real implications to this thing. People are people, right? They're people. People are complicated. Amen? Anybody know any people? This issue is complicated. That's why it being in the political realm was so unhelpful, man, because political. Politics tries to make everything so simple. You know, red versus blue. It's, it's hogwash. It's about people. So the question then becomes this, how can those of us who are Bible-believing Christians and believe that we're reading the text rightly, how can we faithfully lovingly, in a gospel-centered way, engage in a very fruitful way, in a very beneficial way with our LGBT neighbors? How can we do that? How can we engage with them? How can we engage with our LGBT family members or LGBT coworkers or friends? How can we do that in a faithful way in a loving way? Well, first of all, just so you know, um, first of all, number one, the right answer is, just want you to know, the right answer is never, to not believe what the Bible says. So again, I'm taking you somewhere, hang with me. I, I'm just telling you, that's not the right answer. The right answer is not to disbelieve scripture. The, the right answer is not, it's, the right answer is never to say, okay, well, here's what I'll do. I just, I'll just stop believing that that is a sin. I'll just stop believing that. That, that, is, that is not the right answer. Just to, to disbelieve the scripture. That, because here's the deal. Um, what, what, we believe, what we believe is that God has spoken on this issue. For example, just to draw your attention to the few, again, deal with the text, deal with the text. Uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 18. Notice it's Genesis chapter two. It's not chapter three yet. Chapter three, everything went crazy, right? Which I always found funny. Right. It only took us three chapters to screw the whole thing up, right? I mean, go figure. Um, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're at. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. ashamed. So follow this. In the beginning, before sin, before the fall, when everything was the way that God intended for it to be, before Genesis chapter three, before any corruption entered into the world, it was one man with one woman in covenant relationship with no shame. Did you catch that part? With no shame. There was no shame. Why was there no shame? Because there was no sin. There was no corruption. There was no rebellion. So there was no shame. You imagine a world where no shame, right? Right? But then right after this, in Genesis chapter three, our first parents, what do they do? They, they sin against God. They, they choose their own way. And as a result, the curse of sin is upon every single one of us. So now, now here today, 2016, America, right now, right? We're all prone to wander. We're all prone to resist God. We're all prone to choose our own way. Over God's way, we're all prone to not listen to what God has to say, but instead listen to what, what we say, right? And so, and so as a result, as a result of our hearts being bent towards sin, as a result of what we sing all the time, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel I'm prone to leave the God that I love. As a result of that being true... Not one of us is justified in excusing our behavior by simply saying, "Amen, oh man, no big deal, God made me this way. Again, according to the Bible, dealing with the text, because of sin, because of the curse, not a single one of us is justified in excusing our outward behavior by saying, it's all good, no problem, God made me this way. Because according to the Bible, that is not true. According to the Bible, sin has deeply distorted what God has made, right? According to the Bible, sin has deeply distorted our hearts. According to the Bible, sin has deeply distorted our desires. And according to the Bible, sin has deeply distorted our sexual desires. Depravity. Brokenness. Things are not the way that they should be that there's a pastor in the UK named Sam Alberry, and for his entire life, um, he actually recently wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And uh, it's, it's, it's unlike any other book that I've ever read. It's excellent because Sam Alberry is a, is a pastor in the United Kingdom and he's single. He's an, he's an old man and he's single. And he's been single his entire life, unmarried. His entire life he's struggled with, uh, or he's wrestled with same-sex attraction. And he still wrestles with it. He still wrestles with it today. It's not gone. It's still a temptation for him. And he recently wrote this book called Is God Anti-Gay? And and he talks about this very issue of desires. He talks about this very issue of of God and, and God's original intent and things like that. And here's what Sam Albury says. I'm gonna quote him a bunch of times in the next few minutes. But here's what Sam Albury says. We'll throw this up on the screen for you. Sam Albury says, desires... For things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. As we reject God, we find ourselves craving what we are not naturally designed to do. This is as true of a heterosexual person as of a homosexual person. In other words, family, God's original design... Before Genesis 3, was one man with one woman enjoying the God given act of sex within marriage. That's how he designed us, according to the text. Anything other than that regarding sex is sin's distortion, according to the text. And you see, now, this is why 1 Corinthians 6 says this in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, which, by the way, uh, just for emphasis, um, that that is uh, sexually immoral. That that comes from the Greek word "porneia," which is an umbrella term and a junk drawer term that basically means anything and everything that points to sex outside of the confines of marriage. Which means that includes um, that includes heterosexual sexual immorality fornication, adultery, all those things. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, so again, family, here's the point that I'm trying to drive home. Um, God has spoken on this issue in the Bible, and Bible-believing Christians, by definition, have to believe the text, right? And so that's the thing. It's, it's, it's the, great, the great reformer Martin Luther once said it this way. He said, my conscience is held captive by the word of God, see, that's the problem. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. Like I can't move, man. I just, I just believe this stuff. I just believe this stuff. I just believe that this is from God. That's the tension. So, so the answer to the question, how can we as followers of Jesus lovingly engage others, particularly those we love and should love in the LGBTQ community, the the answer to that is, is not stop believing the Bible. It's not stop believing the text. It's not change the text to fit our taste. It's not that. But instead, here's what I want to propose. Here we go. All of that for this. All of that for this. You're like, dude, seriously, I had to spend this time for all this? But hang with me. We, we had to go there, okay? All of that for this. Here's what I want to propose to you tonight, beloved. I believe that the church, and, and when I say church, I mean big C church, okay? That includes Emmaus Church, but I'm saying big C church. I believe that the church will be far more faithful and far more effective in this area if we would simply do this. Ready for it? Ready for it? Give me some help. Okay, good. Um, If we would simply be far more fruitful, far more effective as the church when it comes to this issue, if we would simply, by God's grace, keep the main thing as the main thing. I'll unpack it. But not until you write it down we got to keep the main thing as the main thing, beloved. Here's what I mean, family. Here's what's very interesting. If you study the Bible, which I highly recommend, it's a great book. (laughs) If you study the Bible, one of the things that you will discover as you're studying the Bible is this, family. Out of the entire Bible, think about that. Out of the entire Bible, the, the whole thing right here, right? Out of the entire book. And just to be specific, that is 1,189 chapters, and that is more than 30,000 verses. Out of the entire Bible, did you know, there's only about a dozen or so verses that explicitly talk about homosexuality? Do you know that? The whole thing. Whole thing, 1,189 chapters, more than 30,000 verses. There's only about a dozen or so verses that actually explicitly talk about homosexuality. And let me be clear, Emmaus, before I get emails, I believe that those verses are authoritative. Okay? We gotta be clear on that. Like, like I believe that. But, I am trying to make a point here. And the point that I'm trying to make is this, family. um, You gotta understand The Bible is not primarily a book about homosexuality. Like as followers of Jesus, let's come back to earth a little bit. The Bible is not primarily a book about homosexuality. Like the Bible is not fixated on the topic of homosexuality. The Bible is not obsessed with the topic of homosexuality. It's not. Another way I could say it, I'm just going to say it this way, the main message of the Bible is not, don't be gay. It's not. We've got to be clear on this, beloved, because this is a big deal. And again, Sam Alberry, Sam Alberry who I mentioned a while ago in his book, says it this way. This is so good. Listen to what he says. Put it up on the screen. He says, he says, it, homosexuality, is not what the Bible is, quote, about. Our understanding of what the Bible does say on the subject, therefore, needs to be read in the light of the bigger themes of Scripture. What the Bible says about homosexuality does not represent everything God wants to say to homosexual people. It is not the whole message of Christianity. Christians who want to explain the Christian faith to gay friends need to know that what the Bible says about homosexuality is not the only thing they need to explain, and it is probably not the first thing or even the main thing they need to focus on. What? His point is this, family. The main main point, right? The main point of the Bible is not the issue of LGBTQ. The main point of the Bible is Jesus. This is the main point. This is the scarlet thread throughout all the scripture, right? The main point of the Bible is The gospel, the main point of the Bible is family, that it really doesn't matter who you are like heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, transsexual, doesn't matter because at the end of the day, what we all have in common is that we're all jacked. We all are. We all are. (laughs) We have more in common than you think, according to the Bible. And what's most important is not, listen to me, this is so huge, what's most important is not what you identify yourself as or what I identify myself as, but instead what is most important is what God, our loving creator, has identified us as, which is broken sinners who desperately need new life and new identity that can only be found in Christ, That's the main point of the Bible. It's about Jesus. And we all need Jesus. Sam Albury says it this way. I know I'm quoting this guy like crazy, but he's gold, man. It's absolute gold. Sam Albury says it this way. He says, quote, when Jesus burst onto the scene, I love this. When Jesus burst onto the scene, he didn't subdivide humanity into categories and give each one a separate message. One for the introverts, another for the extroverts, one with logical charts and bullet points for left brain types and one with different colors and ambient music for the right brain folk. God's message for gay people is the same as his message for everyone. Repent and believe. It's the same invitation to find fullness of life in God, the same offer of forgiveness and deep, wonderful, life-changing love. So back to what I said before, family, the way that we as Christians, those of us who are Christians who believe that we're reading the text rightly, the way that we as Christians can begin to lovingly and humbly and faithfully begin to move forward in a fruitful and beneficial way with those who we know and love who are living this lifestyle is to keep the main thing as the main thing. And here's another way we can do that, family. I'm just going <laughs> to... This is going to be fun. I'm going to warn you. Uh, you got to hang with me. You got to hang with me because for some of you at first, what I'm going to say might, might kind of sound weird. Right? Public service announcement. Just saying. Some of you are like, man, everything you've said so far sounds weird, right? But I get it. Hang with me. For some of you, seriously, like you're, you're going to go, What? But here's the deal, I'm just so you know, I totally believe it and I can back it up with Bible and I will. If those of us who are followers of Jesus, and I know that's not all of us in the room, but it's many of us if not most of us. If those of us who are followers of Jesus want to actually begin to, to be helpful and to be loving to our friends and loved ones who deal with same gender attraction you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to change our goal. What? Hang with me. Here's what I mean by change our goal. Here's what I mean. Let me explain. Many of again, we said this at the beginning. many of us in this room have someone we care about in our life who's currently involved in the LGBTQ lifestyle. And if you don't, you should. Now here's the deal, what's happened historically with many of us in the church who have people we know and love who are practicing homosexuals, what's happened historically is that we have believed that our goal, our primary goal for that friend or for that family member needs to be to make that person a heterosexual. That's my goal. I want to influence you to become heterosexual, right? For many of us, man, for, for our family members, for our friends, like, they, like that's been the goal. And I want to propose to you that ain't the goal. Now, don't get me wrong, Emmaus. Here's the deal. I realize there are people who um, have been practicing homosexuals for years. They got radically saved by Jesus, and radically delivered by Jesus, and radically transformed by Jesus, and it is amazing, and it's a miracle, and we sing glory to God as a result of it. But here's what I also know. Here's what I also know, and it's Sam Albury's story, for example. Here's what I also know. There are other people who have been sexually attracted to the same gender for years and then they got saved by Jesus and they still struggle with the temptation of same gender attraction and they're still tempted on a daily basis and yet they continually choose Jesus because they believe that he is better. And I think what happens sometimes is many of us, and, and our intentions are good. Our intentions, I think, are good most of the time. But what happens to many of us is we think the goal for our friends or the people we love who struggle in this particular area is for us to help them become heterosexual, right? We, we're gonna, that's our mission. We're going to influence you to, to become heterosexual. So what do we try to do? We, 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 try to, uh, we try to figure out the right questions to ask, right? We, we try to figure out the, the right things to talk about. We try to fix our friend we try to fix our family members so we try to come up with a solution right cuz we're Americans and that's what we as Americans do we fix things right and so we're trying to fix stuff and so we try to psychoanalyze it all we take our friend to coffee or we you know hang out with them and, and we say things like okay hold on uh, I'll be honest be honest why do you really feel this way why do you, were you molested as a child was your dad not around What's really going on? What Tell me tell me about your, your, your origins. Now, here's the deal. I'm not saying it's not helpful to talk about origins. I think we all could talk about origin because we're all pretty messed up because of our family of origin, amen? But the reality is, like I don't think that's the ultimate goal, family, because what happens is this. We tend to go, hey, tell me what happened. There had to be something that happened. Why do you really feel this way? Okay, well, here's what you need to do. I know what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. You need to believe God, renew your mind, read the right w- books, right? Get the right books at Lifeway, memorize 1 Corinthians chapter six, hang around nothing but heterosexual people for years and then eventually you'll be different. I mean, can I tell you something? Please hear me. If you actually believe that that is all it takes to eliminate temptation from your life, you have a very faulty understanding of sin. (laughs) And you're not even looking in the mirror. Because that, that issue might not be your particular temptation, but I guarantee you, you've got your particular temptations and that formula don't work for you. I'll prove it to you. This will be fun. Here we go. Many of you men in here, you're, you're heterosexual men you heterosexual men, and you have read countless books over the years about the dangers of lust, man. You've read so many books. You've been in Bible studies about the dangers of, of lust, right? You've, you've heard dozens of sermons on David and Bathsheba, and David, man, he should have gone to war, knucklehead, what was his problem, right? And you, you've heard all these sermons about Proverbs chapter 7, the lure of the adulterous woman, and don't follow that adulterous woman, she'll get you into trouble, right? And, and, and you, you've you heard all these sermons about what the Bible should says to you about you should look at other women with absolute Absolute purity as sisters, right? You've heard all the sermons, and you've been in Bible studies, and you've read the books, man. And yet, on a daily basis, you are still tempted to look at internet porn, right? Could have heard a pin drop just now. I don't know. Well, why? What's up with that? You're reading the right books. You're shopping life Lifeway. What's up? You, you see the point. Let's not just pick on the men, let's pick on the ladies. (laughs) I'm sorry, we're not picking on you. I'm just making a point. Um, Some of you ladies in here, you have read so many books on what it means to be content. You've read countless books on what it means to be content. Your identity in Christ, man. You don't have to worry about what she's posting on Instagram or what she's saying or what she's doing. You don't have to worry about all that because you, you could be content in Christ. You could be content in who you are in Jesus. You've read so many books, you've heard so many Bible studies, been in so many small groups, and yet every single day you struggle with not believing that you are good enough. What's up with that? You're reading the right books. You're listening to Beth Moore. What's up? I mean, please hear me. Please hear me. Listen. Follow me. The ultimate goal for a person who struggles with same sex attraction is not that they never battle with that temptation again in the same way that the ultimate goal for a man who struggles with lusting after women is not that he will never experience that temptation again but instead family the ultimate goal like the the main goal is for that person who struggles who struggles with that temptation to see that Jesus Christ and the gospel is far more wonderful and far Far more beautiful and far more glorious and far more satisfying than all of the sin in the world. That is the ultimate goal is how do we see Jesus? Who do we believe that Jesus is? Because the reality is we live in a fallen, broken world where the ripple effects of the fall in Genesis 3 are real and they hit us every single day, which means that person who struggles may battle with that temptation for the rest of his or her life, and yet their life brings much glory to God as they continually choose Jesus over that thing. Continually choosing holiness over sin. That's what we're talking about. It's about holiness. It's about holiness. It's not about, well, just don't do that stuff anymore. Family, we have a word for that, behavior modification. That's not what it's about. We see an example of this in the Apostle Paul's life. And before I even go here, let me just say, I'm not saying the Apostle Paul struggled with same-sex attraction. That's not what I'm saying. I'm serious, so save your email. <laughs> but I find it, here's all I'm saying. I find it very interesting that we're not told the specifics of what's actually happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Let me show you what I mean. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Paul says this. For so many of you, this, this passage is very familiar. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. All right, so, so here's what we know, family, from that text. We, we know that Paul had been given a thorn, A thorn in his flesh. He actually calls it a messenger of Satan, which I guarantee you ain't Greek for something good. (laughs) A messenger of Satan, man. A thorn in the flesh, Paul says, as he calls it. And, and, And here's the deal. Some scholars have speculated that it was an illness. Some scholars have speculated that it was a recurring temptation. Some scholars have speculated that it was even a person in the church. We don't know. We're not told. The point is that we do not know, and I don't know about you, family, I'm glad we don't know. I'm glad that God in his sovereignty kept it a secret from us, because here's how we work as humans that are sinners. If God would have told us exactly what the thorn was, you know what we'd always do? Every single time we read this scripture, we would always compare whatever our thorn is to Paul's thorn, and we'd dream up all these reasons why this passage doesn't apply to us, because we don't have the same thorn. And I love that God said, I ain't going to tell you. <laughs> it's a thorn. Right? You know your heart, man. I know mine. So I love the fact that we don't know what it was. We just know that it was awful. We just know it was terrible. It was a thorn in the flesh. Paul says, a messenger of Satan to harass him, to harass him. And he says, he pleaded with the Lord. He begged the Lord, God, please take this from me. God, I don't want this. Will you please take this? Deliver me. Remove it, God. Remove this thing. I do not want it in my life. And God says to Paul, no. God's answer to Paul is, no, Paul, I'm not going to remove the thorn. But here's what I am going to do, Paul. I am going to show you how amazing my grace is. And guess what, Paul? I'm going to be far more satisfying to you than that thorn. The point is this, family. Listen, the point is this. God doesn't always remove the thorn. Sometimes he does but God doesn't always remove the thorn. Sometimes it's about following King Jesus while struggling with the thorn. In his book, Is God Anti-Gay? Sam Albury actually talks about this specific passage of Scripture. He talks about this passage of Scripture, and he says this about this passage of Scripture. Follow this. Sam Albury says... Such passages, like the one right here we just read, such passages provide great encouragement to those wrestling with same-sex attraction. For some, the battle may be acutely painful. For some, it may last for many, year, many long years. But in God's purposes, it is not a wasted experience. Through it, we can be made more like Christ and better able to grasp the vast dimensions of his grace. There's nothing better for us than that. And so a win for Christians struggling with same-sex attraction is not that the temptations would go away, but that in the heat of them, Jesus would be prized more and more. Struggling with homosexual feelings is just that, a struggle. But many Christians I know can testify to how God has brought good things out of their experiences. Some have said that the Lord has made them more compassionate and sensitive that they might otherwise have been. Others speak of ministry opportunities it has given them. And of how they have been able to support and encourage others they know who are trying to deal with same-sex attraction. Some of that opportunity is to share their faith with parts of the gay community that would be unreachable by conventional church witness. But perhaps above all, they can say how these struggles with all the disorder and insecurity that come with them have led to a deeper appreci- appreciation of how unfathomably good God is. So the question is this, and we're closing. The question is, how can we as Emmaus Church be faithful to Jesus and loving missionaries to the culture around us when it comes to this issue right here? How can we be faithful to Jesus and loving missionaries? That's the question that matters, beloved. That's the question that matters. How can we be faithful to Jesus and loving missionaries? Let me give you five reasons real quickly and then we're done. Just real quick, run through these. First of all, real practical, real simple. First way we can be faithful missionaries and, and loving is number one, here's the deal, have friends who are gay. If you, if you don't, you should. You should. You wanna talk about something that will help you to be more empathetic? is to actually have a conversation with a real person who is living in the LGBTQ community and not just form all of your opinions about them from newsreels. It's about empathy. It's about people. in the image and likeness of God who just like every single one of us deeply needs Jesus. Have friends who are who are gay number two keep the main thing as the main thing it's about the gospel it's about the gospel Paul said I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe he did not say for I'm not afraid of the homosexual argument for it is the power of God for those who believe this. No, no, no. It's about, it starts off with Jesus. Everything, it should always start off with how good Jesus is, how awesome Jesus is, how needy we all are for Jesus. Anything else is legalism. Anything else is behavior modification. It's about Jesus. Keep the main thing as the main thing. Thirdly, and here's the big deal. This is something, I, grenade. Three, make it easy for people within our church who are struggling in this area to actually talk about it. There are people in our church who struggle with same-sex attraction, wrestle with same-sex attraction, and do not feel that their missional community or their discipleship group or their if table or you fill in the blank, do not feel like it is a safe place for them to talk about it. And I think there's a whole lot of reasons for that. I think one of the reasons for that is that oftentimes in the church, and I'm not saying necessarily our church, I'm saying big C church, oftentimes what's happened is the way that we, we've even had this conversation, we have made it seem as if to even be tempted in this area equals sin. Family, temptation is not sin. We're all tempted in many ways, man. To be tempted is not To sin, and we have to know the difference. The church has to be a safe place for people who are wrestling and experience temptation to be honest about what they're wrestling with and experiencing. And I think part of the reason, (laughs) step on some toes, including my own, is that oftentimes in our small group experience, we're not always honest with our junk. We don't create an environment where other people who are struggling can be honest with their junk. I mean, like... Really, really honest with their junk because here they are struggling with same-sex attraction and everything in them wants to talk about it because we as the church are meant to deal with temptations and issues like this in the context of community to bear one another's burdens, but they don't feel as if they have the freedom to talk about it because everything in them wants to, but all we're willing to say in prayer request time is, my uncle's having surgery. Pray for him. It's time we get real about our own sin and temptations, family. And I understand there's a time and a place, and I get get it. I get it, but are we providing environments within our church where we're real about our junk? Because we all got junk. The church should be a place where the person who is struggling in this area, the person who's dealing with it, the person who's wrestling, is it a sin, is it not a sin? What do I do? How do I how do I process this? Even the person who is actively homosexual can come into a community like this and they're processing, is it a sin, is it not? The church should be an environment where they actually believe, you know what? It's cool. I can totally talk about how jacked I am, because I know that's dude It's crazy. I'm just saying, don't be afraid of your crazy. We all got crazy. We'll preach about that later. For number four, this is a big deal. How, How can we be loving and good missionaries in this area? Number four, as a church, one of the things we need to do, and I need to repent of this. I'm serious. I need to repent. I'm guilty of not doing this. Sometimes in my preaching, sometimes in my sermons. And I repent of not doing this, but it's something that we as a church need to do in order to provide an environment where, where, where this can be a place where this can be wrestled with in, inside of the gospel. And it's this number four, we need to honor singleness. We need to honor singleness because the scriptures do. Some people, are apt, some people are actually called by God to be single, according to the Bible. Some people are actually called by the Lord to be single. And sometimes it's simply because God has a, a, perp, a greater purpose, greater effectiveness in the kingdom of God for them. And so they're called to be single, and they're called to just focus on how can I be influential for the kingdom and devote more time to the kingdom and more resources to the kingdom. And Paul, last time I checked, family, Jesus was single. And so was Paul. Paul. Not everybody who's single is single because they're, you know, lazy and a loser. The Bible actually honors singleness. We as a church should honor singleness. Listen, just because you may not be married doesn't mean you're less of a person. Don't get me wrong. Marriage is a blessing. Marriage is a gift for those who are called by God to be married, but for those who are called by God to be single, praise God and be effective for the kingdom of God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people are called by God to be single. Other people who want to be obedient to Jesus and yet deal with this as a temptation choose being single in choosing to be holy. I'm choosing Jesus because he's better than this, so I choose to be single to the glory of God. And we should honor singleness. I found this quote to be helpful. This is not from Sam Albury. Um, surprise. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book, and this is a little bit long. We're gonna end on this. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book. Um, what does the Bible really say about homosexuality? And uh, Kevin DeYoung from the Gospel Coalition says this. Um, he says, quote, but of course, none of this can be possible. I'll talk about honoring singledists. None of this can be possible without uprooting the idolatry of the nuclear family, which holds sway in many conservative churches. The trajectory of the New Testament is to relativize the importance of marriage and biological kinship. A spouse in a minivan full of kids, full of kids on the way to Disney World is a sweet gift and a terrible God. If everything in Christian, I oh, know that I preach, won't it? If everything in Christian communities revolves around being married with children, we should not be surprised when singleness sounds like a death sentence. If that's the church's challenge, what's needed in the wider culture is a deep demytholo- demytholog- demythologizing, go to school much, demythologizing of sex. Nothing in the Bible encourages us to give sex, watch this, the exalted status it has in our culture as if finding our purpose, our identity, and our fulfillment all rest on what we can or cannot do with our private parts. Jesus is the fullest example of what it means to be human and he never had sex. How did we come to think that the most intense emotional attachments and the most fulfilling aspect of life can only be expressed with sexual intimacy? In the Christian vision of heaven, there is no marriage in the blessed life to come. Marital intimacy is but a shadow of a brighter, more glorious reality. The marriage of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. If sexual intimacy is nothing up there, how can we make it to be everything down here? it would be terribly unfair for the church to tell those with same-sex desires that they are not fully human and cannot pursue a fully human life. But if the summum bonum, meaning the highest good of human existence is defined by something other than sex, the hard things that the Bible has to say to those with same-sex desires is not materially different from the hard things it has to say to everyone else. Do you see it? Honor singleness. Singleness. And then fifthly, here's what we need to do. This is huge. Remember who the real enemy is. Remember who the real enemy is. Beloved, please hear me, and I'll end on this. The enemy is not the LGBTQ community. It's not. It's not. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is the evil one. The enemy is the prince of darkness who wants to destroy all of our lives. The hero is Jesus. Jesus. The hero is not you. The hero is not me. The hero of the story is Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. I'm gonna end by saying this. If you are someone who um, identifies yourself as gay or lesbian or transsexual or bi, or I just wanna say this. I want you to know that um, we are not what you would call an affirming church, but you are absolutely welcome in this community. And you may, not, you may not agree with what we believe about this particular issue, but I hope you will never be able to walk away from this place saying, those people don't love me. I hope this has been helpful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks God for your goodness in our lives. I pray. Particularly for those of us in this room who are your followers, your people, help us, Lord. Help us, Holy Spirit. Would we not be a people who exist in just sound bites and news reels and we form our opinions about what we believe about this issue from the latest political pundit. Lord, would we be would we be people of the cross? Would we be sheep who are following the good shepherd? Would we, much like the great reformer once said, Lord, would we be beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread? I pray it all through the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.
2: I think in the LBGTQ community is everything. Honestly, I think they don't get a lot of it. I don't think they understand how much your sexuality becomes who you are. Therefore, even all of your experiences kind of, in a sense, are governed by it. So your friendships, your community, uh, just your, your whole lens, in a way, is through sexual identity. And so I think that's why those in the LGBTQ community get so offended. It's not just that it's sin because I mean we are offended by the gospel when someone says that we're in sin and we need to repent but also it's like you are coming against who I am <laughs> like you're attacking me not something I do but who I am and so I think when we kind of can understand that thinking that I think we'll be able to be a lot more gracious in our approach Um, a lot more empathetic even Um, yeah I think I, th- I think even Christians fail to understand how communal the uh, homosexual community is, like to even say you need to come out of this means that I need to remove myself from the place that I feel safe. And so even that, that's terrifying to a person to say, oh, so not only do I have to stop doing what I do, but I have to leave my friends and the people who make me feel happy or whole into a place or community that doesn't seem as safe as this one. And so. Yeah, it's 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 pretty complicated. That's why I think Christians need to befriend more non-Christians and uh, invite themselves into their circles. Not necessarily go to a gay pride parade, but befriend people that don't go to your church and don't look like you and don't have the same sexual preference as you. And I think from that place, we can both come to an understanding, which will make everything a lot more practical. <laughs>